Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, in an unprecedented move, the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Bart Barber, has released a sharp rebuke of one of his predecessors in that role, Johnny Hunt. We'll explain why the rebuke and why it's important. Also on today's program, Ministry Watch releases its Shining Light Awards. We'll tell you how we arrived at the list and who some of the winners are. We begin today with the latest chapter in the ongoing saga at Liberty University. Yeah, a former administrative dean for academic operations is suing Liberty University for $20 million, alleging that they fired him because he was a whistleblower. Dr. John Markley says that he reported a litany of improper activities he witnessed at LU. These are direct quotes from the lawsuit that he's filed. Starting as early as 2018, He said he reported them both to LU leadership and to law enforcement officials. He is suing the school in Lynchburg, Virginia, for terminating him wrongfully, violating the state's law protecting whistleblowers. Yeah, now Markley was first hired by Liberty as an adjunct faculty member in 2008. He began full-time employment at the university in 2017, serving in a number of capacities before ultimately becoming the administrative dean for academic operations. In that role, he oversaw such uh, operations as human resources and compensation administration, and he reported directly to Scott Hicks, who is the chief academic officer and provost at the school. Now, Markley's lawsuit alleges that he witnessed the inner workings of a multi-billion dollar enterprise that operated to maximize profits without ethics and at the expense of truth and those willing to fight for it and to the detriment of the students and professors. Again, these are direct quotes from the lawsuit itself. Markley claims he made repeated attempts to correct suspected foul play, notifying leadership of troublesome concerns that could be corrected before worsening, and provide figurative sunlight on activities he believed the university, as an evangelical institution, should not be engaged in. Yeah, Dr. Markley uh, is an alumnus of Liberty University's undergraduate program and Divinity School and strongly supports the school's professed mission, the complaint said, saying that Markley's reports were done in the best interest of the university, its students, and its faculty. While the lawsuit does not provide details of what Markley observed, it includes a general list of 15 improper activities he reported. Yeah, they include such actions as improper use of Liberty assets, such as a jet airplane, an improper compensation scheme for Liberty University business executives, misrepresentations to the public and to accreditors regarding academic programs at Liberty University, and intentional destruction of likely relevant evidence. In addition to the $20 million, Barkley is also seeking lost wages and benefits and other remuneration. He's seeking an injunction to prevent Liberty from continuing to violate the Virginia whistleblower law as well. The university's former spokesman, Scott Lamb, has also sued Liberty University. We reported on that previously for retaliation. He filed that suit last year because he complained about how Liberty had handled sexual assaults on campus. 
Our next story is a stunning rebuke of a man who was once one of evangelicalism's most prominent leaders. Yeah, that's right. Bart Barber is the president, current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he has publicly renounced one of its predecessors. Uh, Barber released a statement on Tuesday saying that he would permanently defrock Johnny Hunt if I had the authority to do so. Warren, can you back up and give us a bit of background on this story? First, who is Johnny Hunt and why did Bart Barber feel it necessary to issue such a statement? Hunt served as president of the nation's largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, from 2008 to 2010, but he stepped aside from public ministry in May after allegations that he had sexually assaulted another pastor's wife, and those allegations became public. Then last week, a group of pastors announced that Hunt had been restored to ministry less than six months after Southern Baptists passed a series of reforms designed to address the sex abuse crisis within the denomination. In addition to his statement, Barber went on social media to call Hunt's return a repugnant act. So Bart Barber is not only confronting Johnny Hunt's wrongdoing, but he's also rebuking the group of pastors who reinstated Hunt. That's exactly right, and that's one of the reasons why this story is so significant. Barber was elected at the SBC's 2022 annual meeting earlier this year, where the delegates charged him with implementing abuse reforms that were passed in that same session. But Barber's defrocking comments uh, points to the challenges that he and the SBC face in addressing uh, abuse within the denomination. And because the denomination churches are autonomous, no SBC official, including even Bart Barber, the president, actually has the authority to discipline Johnny Hunt. But on the other hand, this group of pastors doesn't have the power to restore Johnny Hunt either. Yeah, that's right. And Barber made that very point in his statement. He said that the pastors who now claim to have restored Johnny Hunt don't have that authority either. Here's a quote from Barber's statement. The idea that a council of pastors assembled with the consent of the abusive pastor possesses some authority to declare a pastor fit for resumed ministry is a conceit that is altogether absent from Baptist polity and from the witness of the New Testament. Indeed, it is repugnant to all that those sources extol and represent." Tiffany Thigpen, an abuse survivor and longtime advocate of abuse victims, said Hunt's return to ministry is a sign that the legislated reforms have not have yet to change Southern Baptist culture. She said that we are always going to have this network of powerful men who can do whatever they want and think that they can get away with it, and they are right. And I I should add, Natasha, that I interviewed Bart Barber, had an extended conversation with him, about 30 minutes, uh, for a podcast that I do for World Magazine called Listening In, and I would uh, encourage any of our listeners to go and hear that conversation. And we talked at some length about this idea of strategy and culture, where you can have the right words in your strategic documents, but if the culture of an organization 
administration doesn't support that strategy, nothing is going to change. Now, Bart Barber says that he thinks that the culture of the Southern Baptist Convention will, in fact, support this change in strategy, and he thinks that incidents like this are an outlier. And I should say that his strong words in this statement, his willingness to confront this uh, council of churches, uh, council of pastors, rather, does indicate that maybe things are changing, though not very quickly, within the Southern Baptist Convention. Warren, while we're on the subject of the Southern Baptist Convention, let's look at one more story related to that denomination. Yeah, a former seminary professor and missionary who admitted to sexual misconduct has sued a group of Southern Baptist leaders and entities claiming that they conspired uh, with an abuse survivor to ruin his reputation. In a complaint filed on November 21st in the Circuit Court of Mobile, Alabama, David Sills, a former professor professor of missions and cultural anthropology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, admits that he lost his job in 2018 due to what he called morally inappropriate, consensual, intimate conduct with a student. Stills claims the situation was consensual and alleges that SBC leaders, including Southern's president, Albert Moeller, turned his confession against him, labeling him an abuser. Yeah, they did so, according to the complaint, as a public relations stunt aimed at improving the SBC's reputation during the sex scandal that we've already been talking about. That public relations effort, according to the lawsuit, included an investigation by Guidepost Solutions into SBC leaders' handling of alleged abuse cases, which was made public earlier this year. David Sills was repentant and obedient to the rules of the SBC, the complaint alleges, Defendants, though, saw him as an easy target, a bona fide scapegoat. The complaint named Southern Seminary and Moeller, as well as SBC's executive committee, SBC President Bart Barber, and his predecessor, Ed Litton, as defendants. Yeah, and in uh, an unusual move, it also names Jennifer Lyle, a former seminarian and vice president for Lifeway, who has repeatedly alleged that Sills was abusive. She was the woman in that relationship. Warren, we need to take a break. When we return, members of a megachurch have taken over the city council of Redding, California. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll have that story and much more after this short break. Hello everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com.
Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Well, next up, the story we promised before the break, members of Bethel, the 11,000-member Northern California megachurch, now hold the majority on Redding's city council. Yeah, Bethel Church, famous for its elaborate healing services for the Bethel music label and for musician Sean Feck's nationwide worship protests against COVID restrictions, uh, now hold a majority of the Reading City Council after November's elections, according to nearly complete voter counts. Uh, Bethel members Tanisa Audette, who's 45 years old and a first-time candidate, and Jack Munns, who's 64 years old and ran two years ago for the first time, will now join Bethel Elder Julie Winter on the five-member Reading City Council. Six evangelicals, three Bethel members, and three members of the Stirring Church, which has connections to Bethel, were among 10 candidates running for three open seats. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I should say that Reading is uh, a good-sized city. It has uh, 93,000 people in Shasta County, California, and the county itself has a population of almost 200,000, about 182,000 people. So both Bethel's size and its commitment to political activism, though, has gained it increasing local influence over the past decade as it seeks to create what it calls heaven on earth. Bethel's theology and practices have long been controversial. Controversial. There are two Facebook groups, um, the 960-member Investigating Bethel Reading and a 1.8-member Bethel-affiliated businesses group that monitor and critique the church. But Bethel has its supporters. Yeah, it sure does. Uh, and uh, I don't mean just supporters who attend the church. Uh, a lot of folks in the community think that Bethel has done a great deal for the city and the county in many ways. Uh, members volunteer and serve throughout the city and lots of nonprofit organizations. The large number of travelers who visit Bethel and its five schools, it has a Christian school, a school of what it calls supernatural ministry, a conservatory for the arts, a school of technology, and a music college. They have uh, allowed the city to keep a non-stop United Airlines flight to Los Angeles alive when otherwise that flight might have been canceled. When the Reading Civic Auditorium faced closure uh, a couple of years ago, Bethel created the nonprofit Advance Reading organization to lease the facility. The city approved a 10-year lease extension back in 2021. Our next story is a win for religious liberty. Yeah, it is. A lawsuit filed two months ago against government officials threatening to punish the Wyoming Rescue Mission for only hiring like-minded Christians has been settled. Uh, the Rescue Mission sought help from Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, after the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the Wyoming Department of Workforce Services launched a 16-month-long investigation into the Wyoming Rescue Mission to determine whether the nonprofit engaged in religious discrimination that was prohibited by law. The investigation began after the mission chose not to hire a self-proclaimed non-Christian for one of their thrift store associate positions. 
Yeah, and that uh, applicant filed a religious discrimination charge, and government officials began investigating at that time. The EEOC and the Wyoming Department of Public Services determined that the mission violated the Wyoming Fair Employment Practices Act and Title VII, refusing to for refusing to hire the applicant. However, Alliance Defending Freedom Lawyers asserted that these laws do not apply to faith-based organizations, that they get a a religious exemption, and that they can hire uh, employees based on the beliefs and values of the organization itself. The mission filed a lawsuit claiming that the EEOC and the department repeatedly ignored these exemptions. Now, as part of the settlement, uh, the department and the EEOC agreed to pay the rescue mission's attorney's fees. In addition, the court dismissed EEOC from the case and signed a consent decree uh, settling it with the state as well. Our next story is an update on one we've been following for a while. It's the story of the original Vineyard Movement Church, which recently left the denomination. Yeah, the widow of the man who planted the original Vineyard Church in Anaheim, California back in 1977 is suing the current pastors for fraud and the alleged misappropriation of $62 million stemming from the pastor's decision to split from the overarching USA organization. The lawsuit was filed November 10th in Orange County, California's Superior Court. Carol Wimber Wong and eight other former church members filed the suit. And if Carol Wimber Wong's name sounds familiar, it's because probably she was the widow or is the widow of the founder of the Vineyard Movement, John Wimber. Now, the Carol Wimber Wong and uh, the other plaintiffs allege that Alan and Catherine Scott had deceitful motives when they sought the position of senior pastor at Vineyard Anaheim four years ago, and they intended from the beginning to take the Anaheim Church independent. The Scots had been pastors of Vineyard Church in Ireland. Yeah, they started in their new positions, though, in Anaheim in 2018. The Scots and a handful of other leaders made the decision in March of this year to separate the Anaheim Church from the Vineyard USA movement. We reported on that decision at the time. Uh, Alan Scott said that he was led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, He said he had no dispute with the Vineyard movement at large. Now, the first hearing in this case is scheduled for April 28th of next year. Warren, let's look at one more story before we take another break. A federal jury in Charlotte, North Carolina, convicted Michael Mandel Baldwin, 53, of Alexandria, Virginia, for defrauding investors of more than $800,000 in an investment scheme. Yeah, Baldwin was indicted last year while working as an assistant pastor and musical director for a church in Northern Virginia. In addition, though, he was the CEO of what he called the Miracle Mansion. He was seeking funds for the Miracle Mansion. Baldwin lied about the activity and success of Miracle Mansion to local church members and others throughout the U.S., including Virginia, Arkansas, Florida, and Georgia. Miracle Mansion was supposed to be a -a one-of-a-kind entertainment complex that would reshape the face of family entertainment by promoting family-focused inspiration, entertainment, and enrichment anchored in a biblical worldview. 
Yeah, but apparently all of those claims were fabricated. According to a news release from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Charlotte, U.S. Attorney Dina King um, announced the guilty verdict calling Baldwin's Miracle Mansion a house of lies. Baldwin regularly claimed that the Kennedy Center and high-level executives at Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby endorsed and supported the Miracle Mansion. However, during the trial, high-level executives with Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby testified they didn't know Baldwin or his project and did not support it. Yeah, Baldwin spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of investor money on his excessive lifestyle, at least according to prosecutors. In addition, court documents say that he used at least $150,000 to pay others involved in the Miracle Mansion and spent more investor money trying to make Ponzi-style payments to previous investors to keep them quiet whenever they wondered where their money was and where where it was going. The federal jury convicted Baldwin of securities fraud, which carries a maximum prison term of 20 years, as well as a $5 million fine. In addition, he was found guilty of wire fraud, which also has a maximum prison term of 20 years and a $250,000 fine. Uh, Officials have released Baldwin on bond, and they have not yet set a sentencing date. Warren, we're going to take another break when we return our lightning round of ministry news of the week. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. We like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What do you have first? North America's 280 Christian seminaries enrolled about 78,000 students this fall. That sounds like a lot, and it is a fair number, but it's actually 600 fewer than the year before, and it continues a multi-year trend in declines in higher education enrollment in this country. Online seminary classes continue to be a powerful draw for students, many of whom study part-time. The growing menu of master's degree options continues to attract a more diverse and older student body as well. While COVID had little impact on the actual number of students enrolled, it did shift significant numbers to online classes, uh, leading to a one-year enrollment increase back in 2020. And this week, we have another story based on our Ministry Watch survey of ministry executives. 
Yeah, that's right. It's about the age of ministry executives. And I should begin this by saying that as America has gone, so do the chief executive officers of many of the nation's top Christian ministries. Uh, A recent Ministry Watch survey of the leaders of the largest thousand Christian groups in the country reflects this trend. Ninety percent of responding leaders are over the age of 50, and 50 percent are over the age of 60. This trend mirrors that in the top 1,000 American companies. A survey by consulting firm Corn Ferry found that the average age of a CEO across all industries was 59 years old. Yeah, and none of this could really be surprising since the overall population of the country is aging as well. In 1970, the average age of an American was 28 years old. Today, that number is 39, so more than a, we're more than a decade older on average than we were in 1970. Uh, a variety of circumstances also play into the fact that adults are working longer and, um, and working at older ages. In fact, according to a Pew Research report, adults 65 and older who were employed uh, rose from about 12% in 1980 to 19% in 2015. And that's not the only finding from the recent Ministry Watch survey. Yeah, that's right. We also learned that less than 20% of ministry leaders are women. About 82% of respondents said that they were men, and 18% of the leaders are women. This also mirrors uh, surveys done by other organizations. In fact, the Imago Day Fund did a similar survey in 2014, and they found that 16% of chief executive officers of evangelical nonprofit organizations were women. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? Yeah, just a couple of quick items that um, I'd like to mention, Natasha, if I could. Uh, First of all, a huge thank you to those who showed up for us on Giving Tuesday earlier this week. We had an ambitious goal for the month of November. It was $25,000. And just before midnight on Giving Tuesday, we hit that goal. Uh, We had about 175 donations during the month of November, which is a record for us in November as well. So thank you. And um, I also want to mention that I'll be doing a lunch for Ministry Watch supporters in New York City on Friday, December the 16th. So if you live in New York, keep your eyes open for an email from me uh, with the details. And if you want to make sure you get that invitation, you can email me directly. My email is wsmith at ministrywatch.com. And finally, I wanted to mention our Shining Light Awards. I think a lot of regular uh, listeners to the podcast or readers of our material, Natasha, know that every month we Uh, generate a list, uh, kind of a a list curated from our database. It might be the largest ministries or the highest paid executives. But every December, we do a very special list. Uh, We call it our Shining Light Awards. These are organizations that are sort of the cream of the crop of the organizations in our database. They get a five five stars in our five-star financial efficiency rating. They have an A transparency grade, which is our top transparency grade. And 
they get at least a 90 in our donor confidence score. That's a scale from 0 to 100. You've got to get at least 90 uh, to get on this list. So it's a pretty select group. Uh, and out of the more than 1,000 ministries on our database, about 60 organizations actually meet all three of those criteria. That's the list. That's our Shining Light Awards for 2022. That list is on the front page of our website. And I really recommend that you check it out because, you know, while there are a couple of well-known ministries on that list, and I would uh, mention, for example, Crown Financial Ministries, led by my friend Chuck Smith, and uh, also the Family Research Council, uh, led by Tony Perkins, of course. There's also a lot of organizations that you've probably never heard of um, that are just doing fantastic work. And so I do recommend that you check out that list. And, uh, you know, you might even want to consider making a year-end gift to one of these Shining Light Ministries. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Yonat Shimron, Bob Smitanya, Steve Raby, Kim Roberts, Christina Darnell, and Jessica Ederalde. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.